This week on FX Guide TV. We talked to ILM's John Knoll about the stereo conversion work done for Episode 1 of Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dale and welcome to FX Guide TV. The Star Wars franchise is one of the most successful of all time and it's now returning to the big screen in stereoscopic 3D. John Knoll, who was the VFX supervisor on episode one, Phantom Menace, has now supervised the stereo conversion of the latest release of the film. Mike Seymour recently sat down with John to discuss what he thinks makes for successful stereoscopic storytelling. The stereoscopic version, and I'm gonna use the word stereo instead of 3D because I think it's slightly confusing, of Star Wars, mm -hmm. how much do you think uh, the story is getting uh, refreshed by just being in stereo. Does it feel any different to the time that you saw it first when you know it premiered when you'd worked on it? Well, probably the biggest difference is that uh, because George has a, an inclination to do very dense compositions with uh, there's a lot going on, uh, actually having that extra dimension uh, makes things spatially clearer. You know, the relationship of characters and, and what's important to look at. So I think it's actually a little bit clearer now because of stereo. So on some completely recent animated kind of films, it's possible to just re-render them because obviously they're just fully mm -hmm. CG. But this is at its heart a live action film, so you actually have to dimensionalize these films to be able to allow us, the audience, to see them. Yeah, enough of the film was live action that it really wasn't practical to do something like uh, what had been done on Toy Story with restoring the scenes and, uh, and re-rendering. Um, our pipeline has changed dramatically enough uh, since this work was started in 1997 that, uh, that uh, we don't have machines that, uh, that, that use that same software anymore. It was all animated in uh, soft image and uh, it was um, the RenderMan renders were uh, dispatched uh, from um, uh, iRender. These are packages we don't even run anymore. They were compiled for iRix, and so we can't even uh, can't uh, can't use them anymore. So it it's um, it really wasn't practical to to go back into the scenes. It was um, probably as simple as to treat it uh, entirely as this is 2D source material, and we're going to do conversions just from those final images. And yet some of the material seems uh, obviously, and it wasn't, but it feels so much like it was born to be in stereo. And I, I'm mm -hmm. gonna pick a favorite, obviously the pod race sequence. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just has everything that you want for a stereo sort of thing in the sense that there's movement, there's depth, mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of action. And there's a, not a ride element, but a kind of a, a journey along mm -hmm. first person narrative experiential kind of feel it, that must be like a joy to get a scene like that where you go, well, this is gonna work really well. Yes and no, because uh, the, the, the best stereo is when you have a lot of objects that are relatively close to the camera, because that's where the, um, the interocular gives you um, a big difference between the, the eyes. And when you have big spectacle shots where you're looking at a very wide landscape and there's nothing particularly close to camera, there's not a lot of stereo possibility there unless it's a big cheat. And that was one of my stylistic guidelines at the beginning, was that uh, we're not going to do hyper-stereo. We're going to be looking at the sequences more holistically. And if, if you have a big, wide, epic shot, as 
George is very uh, uh, want to do, um, we're not going to push it. If there's nothing close to camera, then we're going to let those be a little bit flatter. And I'm going to rely on the fact that um, on either side of that epic shot, there'll be closer shots where we're in with our characters, where there are lots of stereo possibilities. So I want to look at this more holistically. You know, how does this feel as a stereo experience as a whole thing, rather than on a per shot granularity? And so as an overriding uh, concern, uh, if we're working out the maths of some stereo, it makes a big difference how it's projected. If it's on a small screen, it's on a big screen. That really mm -hmm. affects what you can do in terms of divergence. Uh, are you aiming this to be uh, seen ideally in a theater environment on a big screen TV? What's the kind of baseline? It, it was optimized more for theatrical projection. Uh, but that, that said, it's meant to be, it's a long picture, so it's meant to be a low strain stereo. So we're trying to... Uh, avoid um, going too extreme in places where it, it's just going to give you a headache. So we try to be naturalistic with it, um, relatively low strain, um, and to the largest extent possible to you know, look like we had actually shot it in stereo. So I understand from what you're saying that most of the action is in uh, a positive space but are you using anything like floating windows to try and buy yourself some of the negative space without you know, being kind of cheesy about it? In general, the, the, the space is distributed one-third forward and two-thirds back. And yes, we use floating windows to, to reduce eye strain. Um, I was a little dubious about floating windows in general just because uh, a lot of my recent stereo experience came from uh, my stint on Avatar, and uh, uh, Jim Cameron has very strong opinions about uh, what works in stereo and what doesn't, and uh, I think he's right about, uh, the, about almost all of them. And he is very strongly against floating windows. You don't need them, they're in your peripheral vision, you're looking there, it doesn't matter. Uh, but we did a couple of tests, and I saw before, after, and and uh, I became a convert. I think it really does help reduce that cognitive distance you get at the edge of, uh, of screen. And, uh, so and you don't have the luxury of, for example, uh, changing the luminance of a closed object that is breaking and having um, you know, edge violation. And obviously mm -hmm. there are a bunch of tricks in stereo. We say, oh, well, that's a really bright thing. It's got edge violation. Let's mm -hmm. either move it, dull it down, or you know, take the light off it. Yeah. if you're shooting it, but of course you were composing for a mono, so you don't have that luxury going in. Right, so if you're originating new material for, for stereo, if you're shooting it in stereo, then you can make all sorts of aesthetic choices about how you deal with uh, foreground objects, um, how you compose them, and, and how you use your stereo budget, and all that, that sort of thing. But if you're converting a library title like this, you have to work with what you've got, and, uh, and, and that, that actually was something that was nice about, um, about designing the, the stereo is that uh, if you, for example, had a shot that was composed with a, a close foreground object that under uh, other circumstances, if you're shooting it with a real stereo camera, you may have used up 90% of your stereo budget just with that foreground object and then the whole background becomes very flat. You could cheat that. You could go for a more naturalistic stereo for the background objects and then that foreground object that would bust everything, well, we'll pull it forward from the other bits, but not as far as it really would be given the depth that we're adding elsewhere. And you can do those kinds of trade-offs to sort of more optimize the, the stereo for you know, what you've got to work with. 
having separate cameras for uh, foreground background that have different interaxial distance was something that uh, uh, is quite a familiar process from uh, my stint on, on Avatar. Um, you know, we did a lot of cockpit shots that were, you know, had the, the um, foreground camera had a particular interaxial, but uh, uh, Jim had designed uh, um, a coverage of the background that sometimes had was shot with different focal lengths than the foreground was and uh, very frequently had different interaxial distances um, just so that they wouldn't be quite so flat. Uh, so this was something I was quite used to, these sort of cheats of what the, the real depth uh, was. And that was something that, that we bore in mind as, as we were doing this work, that um, we would have a certain level of, of uh, depth that we would add to, a, and to use the same example, in, in a uh, foreground cockpit shot. You know, there's a, a nice level of shaping and, and depth that felt right there. But then um, what you'd see in the background would be often very, very far away. And uh, should that be completely flat or should we you know, break it up a little bit? And sometimes just to see the tiniest bit of depth in it uh, would require the equivalent of an interaxial that was uh, significantly different than the foreground. Just uh, I want to talk about it from a creative viewpoint. <clears throat> um, a stereographer would quite often break down a script in terms of a stereo um, sort of palette much the way that a colorist would think about the arc of colors. Mm -hmm. um, was that something that was happening? And, and if it was, was that being presented to you? Or were you actually driving that sort of mm -hmm. uh, feeling of the ebb and flow of the dimensionalization and the roundness of the characters? I was cribbing a lot of my stereo style on this project from uh, Jim Cameron's playbook on, on Avatar. And there's really no... Um, stereo arc in Avatar, it's, it's done on a naturalistic basis that the amount of depth that, that uh, is presented to you is based really on what the subject matter is. And uh, all the way from the beginning of the movie to the end, it, it seems fairly um, consistent with that logic. And so um, I tried to do the same thing on, on episode one, where the level of, uh, of depth and roundness that you see on, um, on um, an individual shot is really based on what that shot is. And so I'm not trying to make uh, this scene flatter because it's uh, more emotionally constrained or this scene uh, deeper because the action is heightened. Uh, no, it was more trying to do something that felt naturalistic. And so when consistent. you and I spoke uh, during Avatar, you surprised me by saying that you actually removed most of the stereo monitoring from the stations and said you liked judging it in the, in the theater. <clears throat> How are you judging this work? Is it do you just spend a lot of time in the theater? Because obviously the size yeah. of the actual screen really makes a big difference. Yeah, all of the reviews that we did were, were in a theater. I didn't look at anything on a stereo monitor. And I, I did, my mind hasn't really changed uh, since my experience on Avatar, that there's a very strong psychological difference between viewing stereo on a small monitor and viewing something very large. Um, on a, the, the small 19-inch monitors that we had converted to stereo, the, the subjective experience is that you don't really see anything that looks like it's uh, closer than about four inches from the screen or any deeper than about three or four inches deep. So it all has this very compressed sort of bas-relief look. And if you're making aesthetic decisions based on viewing it in that form, I think the tendency would be to, to, to do much deeper stereo than you could really deal with in the theater. You go into the theater and it's suddenly going to be headache-inducing um, hyper-stereo. So I felt like looking at stereo on a monitor, um, that that was useful for spotting gross errors 
a better way of seeing whether there's a mistake. Or you, you would look at something in stereo and see there was a mistake. But uh, my favorite technique for diagnosing exactly what that mistake is, very simple. It's just literally popping back and forth in mono between the right and left eye and looking at how everything shifts. So I often had the experience um, of being in the theater and seeing something that, you know, with the glasses on, oh, something's really broken about the stereo. And it's sometimes hard to figure out exactly what it is. But if you pop out of stereo and, and jump left and right, you can see exactly what it is. Oh, one of our elements isn't stereo, or the eyes are swapped on one of the elements, something like that, or something is converging in the wrong spot. You can see that very quickly by just looking at how all the parallax shifts. So that's generally a better way to diagnose these problems. So if we were doing a live action stereo production, a mm -hmm. critical stage would be the grade because we're going to lose yeah. light because of the nature of the, the eyes because we're wearing glasses mm -hmm. and so we've got some filters there. Um, if you just took the grade of the original episodes and yeah. ran them through, it wouldn't work. Uh, so are you regrading and is that an overall regrade or are you on a shot by shot grading it? Well, there needed to be uh, two new color timings done for the show. Uh, partly because I used this as an opportunity to upgrade all the material. Uh, episode one, when it was originally finished, um, on a per shot basis, uh, it was done sort of old style, where we'd final a shot, um, uh, or we'd film out a shot, we'd look at uh, a print of that filmed out negative in the theater, and that's what we would final. Um, it was, went through a conventional negative cut, um, an optically timed IP was wow. made from that, and then the master printing negatives were made from that timed IP. So That really dramatically reduced your options. Well, this was an opportunity to, to, to fix that. Um, okay. So and everything that you saw in the theater was two generations down from the original. Um, and when the original DVD was released, you know, where did all the video products came, come from? They came by scanning in that timed IP because it was the simplest thing to do. It already encapsulated the color timing. So when it came time to decide what are we actually sending as the master, if we're going to take this whole movie and we're going to cut it up into 2,000 separate pieces, we're going to do work on those separate pieces, then we're going to reassemble it, um, we have an opportunity to go back to the original material. Uh, we could go back to the original film-out tapes that are a couple generations better than, the, uh, than the, what had been seen as the final result previously. Um, so we figured, um, let's, let's do that. We made a concerted effort to collect all those old uh, uh, bits to uh, recreate all the dissolves and, and, uh, and wipes that were um, in the original. And, uh, and because of that, those, this is all pre-graded material. So we had to, to redo the color timing um, just to have even um, you know, the new Blu-ray master that, uh, uh, that was going to be released. And then there is a device-dependent color timing that's done to compensate for the light loss that's, um, that comes from stereo. It has been an area that's had tremendous uh, growth in quality because, as is the case with any enterprise, you get better as you go through time. And, and the first films you know, really had to get over some humps. And then mm -hmm. it seems like we've, as an industry, got a lot better at doing dimensionalization. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're holding our breath for, for this one. Um, but uh, do you feel that like uh, we're getting to a point that that technology curve is starting to flatten out, or are there still big leaps to be made moving forward over the next sort of five years? 
Well, it, it gets better and better. Um, and I, I saw real growth in, uh, in Prime Focus's ability to, to do high quality material uh, with fewer iterations over the course of this project. And I, I came in with a very strong opinion of, uh, I have three major pet peeves with um, uh, post conversions that I've seen in the past. Uh, number one is hyperstereo, where everything gets this uh, super deep um, conversion, even things that are inappropriately that way. And that, that for me just throws me out of the movie, where suddenly I'm looking at a big wide scene and it looks like there's little tiny people running around on a tabletop. It just, I'm just thrown out of the narrative and it doesn't work for me. And the, the, whatever you get out of like, wow, look how deep that is, is destroyed by you know, the, how the scale has been undermined. And having worked on, uh, on episode one for two and a half years, we put a lot of energy into trying to establish scale in places and to have that all undermined by miniaturizing everything. Just, yeah. So I don't like hyperstereo. Um, I don't like weird, warpy depth, um, where you see um, overdriven stereo inside a character where his nose sticks way out or his forehead is bulgy, or um, you know, where you're seeing things that completely disagree with what you know to be the case. Like I've seen conversions where the, the hair behind a character's ear appears to be at the same plane as their nose. Just, well, that's, just, that's not right. Or something that's supposed to be a flat tabletop looks like it's inclined up. Uh, there's a lot of places where the, the shaping is just plain wrong. And I see that very clearly, and it really bothers me. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's another pet peeve. I'm not going to have any of that. And then uh, infill is probably the, the single most uh, complicated and labor-intensive part of, uh, of the post-process. Um, and it's often skimped on or skipped entirely. And so you, you have a character that, uh, that will appear to be at the right depth and then uh, the edges will recede back because either they skimped or didn't bother with, uh, with infill. And that really bothers me too, when you see a character's hair looks like it extrudes back behind them. And so I was really um, adamant up front that, uh, okay, we're not gonna have any hyperstereo, we're not gonna have any weird warpy shaping, and we're not gonna have any receding edges. And um, I, I was pretty diligent about enforcing that on this, this project. And I think being, you can get there if you take enough time and put enough attention to detail into it. And you can't get that if you are converting everything in two months with a gun to your head. So if you have a longer period of time, and in this case we had, uh, we, we had a year and a half. Um, we finished the conversion um, in about 10 months. So, you know, we, we got it done ahead of schedule, uh, but it was really nice not to have a looming deadline that, that meant that, uh, okay, whatever is coming in, this, this has got to be it because we've got to start printing reels. Um, uh, was a really nice luxury that, that uh, and we could keep iterating until we were really happy with the result. Because Lucas was, Lucasfilm was clear that, that you know, this is, um, this is an important property and we don't want to do a gimmicky kind of novel, novelty conversion on this. I don't want to you know, throw stuff past the camera all the time and you know, emphasize the you know, eye-popping stereo nature of it. And of course, uh, you had access to the principal creative of the film. Mm -hmm. um, how involved was George Lucas? I mean, because obviously you were supervising mm -hmm. the, the uh, stereo conversion, but mm -hmm. you know, I imagine he wanted to see it every once in a while. 
Uh, yeah. I, um, George and I had a discussion at the beginning about um, what the style of the stereo ought to be, and he was um, he was willing to give me a lot of free reign on that. You exercise your own taste on this, and uh, and then I'll weigh in when I see the results. Uh, so we went through a, a process at the beginning of, uh, and we had a, a suite of a dozen or so shots that we used to kind of establish what the stereo language was and what my expectations were. Um, so we got those, uh, iterated on them until I was happy with the look of them, and I showed them to George, and, uh, and he seemed pretty happy with the, the choices that I was making. So he said, yeah, proceed along those lines. Uh, then we iterated on uh, the, the first reel that we worked on, you know, similarly until uh, I was happy with uh, how it was all playing in depth. And then you know, when we got to that point, we'd show, show the reels to George, and uh, he would say, uh, this part's working for me really well. It'd be great if we could do a little bit more uh, with this part here. Or I think you're missing an opportunity when he does the, that to get a little more wow. Do you feel like um, the pipeline is going to afford you a lot of efficiencies running forward? Like, is it one of those things that you now know how to do it? It was an education on, on both sides. I mean, I, I've really developed uh, opinions about what works and what doesn't, and, uh, and my uh, feeling about uh, what the stereo style of this is going to be has solidified uh, a bit more. And then um, on the vendor side, uh, Prime Focus did go through a big learning curve uh, um, on all the same things, you know, what my tastes are and that, what I'll, I'll accept and what I won't. And, and, uh, and they, they definitely got better towards the, the latter portion of the, the project. Their first iteration on a reel would be much further along and much more reflective of what my tastes and expectations were. Uh, than when we first started. So they, they got much, much better as we went along. And so I imagine that that, that will roll nicely into the next one. That, uh, um, if you we'll were supervising better better a live action stereo film now, let's mm -hmm. say, uh, you know, there's, a, there's suddenly a brand new Star Wars film mm -hmm. and it's going to be shot stereo. Do you think there are things that you would do in a live action film now that you've learned? Or is the dimensionalizing process a very separate kind of skill set? One doesn't really influence the other. Um, For you personally, me personally, I, I feel like uh, like if you're going to originate new material for stereo exhibition, you should shoot it in stereo. Um, that um, varying interaxial, depending on focal length, and a lot of these things that uh, that Jim Cameron did on uh, on Avatar, um, make uh, a lot of sense. Uh, and I would shoot stereo. Uh, learning from the wisdom of, uh, of the master that way. Um, You'd shoot converged or shoot I'd shoot parallel. Parallel, parallel shoot or converged, mm -hmm. like, sorry, parallel but converge on the farthest thing in the room kind of thing. Because there's full uh, parallel and then there's let's just fix it at a fair way off and then just, it's not actually parallel but we're treating it like parallel because we don't touch it. Well, I think technically it's better to go completely parallel if you can because then you're avoiding mismatched keystoning between the eyes. Okay. And, uh, and the, the actual converged uh, cameras, the towed-in cameras on Avatar, I think, did tend to create some eye strain because you know, there's a different magnification on the different sides of frame. So there's vertical misalignment there. And that, um, that if you think of you know, subjectively what's your experience looking at a scene in 3D is if you, know, you, you 
close your eyes alternately, you're just seeing objects shifting over. You don't see it, you know, obviously, since your, your um, retina is a hemispherical surface, uh, uh, there isn't any keystone difference between what you see in your eyes. And so uh, when you're shooting material, it should be kind of more like that subjective experience, <clears throat> especially since both your eyes are kind of focused on the same screen. That, so the keystone of the two eyes um, is, is uh, the same that way. So I think it's technically better and reduces eye strain to have um, matched keystoning between the eyes. And the only way you get that is if your film planes are completely parallel. So the, the better way of, of doing this stuff is just mount your cameras uh, completely um, in parallel and then have extra image that you're working with to allow you to do that uh, convergence later. And it reduces um, one source of error on set. If you, if you, your cameras are, are locked um, straight parallel and you have the option to choose all of your, make all those convergence uh, decisions in post, then, uh, then the one degree of freedom you've got there is, is interaxial, and, uh, and that's the one thing you have to make sure you get. And right. yet, parallel converge as you vary in post <coughs> the interaxial, you're defining the convergence point and the. the well, mark. interaxial, you have to shoot into it. It's the convergence that you can change arbitrarily in post. But I'm saying, as you adjust the effective x offset, you effectively mm -hmm. pick the convergence point in post because, yes. as you, yeah. But my point is. Uh, the master's playbook would also say that point of convergence mm -hmm. should be at the focus point and you should track with them. Are you subscribed to that theory? Yeah, um, I've, I've definitely seen a lot of different flavors of that. You know, when we, there was, um, there was a time um, when there was some very serious discussion of Rango being done as a stereo release. And, um, Gore wanted to educate himself very quickly about, about different stereo styles. And so we, we screened uh, bits of a whole bunch of different films that uh, recent releases in stereo. Um, and this was a, a really wonderful opportunity for me to, to, to be able to back to back these films. Because I'd seen, of course, uh, I'd seen Avatar. Uh, we looked at uh, a bit of uh, Shrek. Uh, I think it was it Shrek 4 in, uh, in, in 3D. Um, a bit of Up, a bit of How to Train Your Dragon, uh, and uh, Alice in Wonderland. And we had digital prints of these, and we could watch five minutes of one and then switch to another. And while I'd seen them all, I'd seen them all very separated in time. And to be able to back-to-back -back them like this was a really... Well, with, with matching fantastic. screen depth and position in yeah, the seats and everything. Exactly. So just in one theater to be able to watch five minutes of Avatar and then switch to, to uh, Up and then switch to um, Shrek. It was, um, it was a really great um, way to, to form opinions about what you thought worked and what, what you didn't. And I thought uh, the stereo in Avatar works great, um, but seeing the, the, the style that uh, DreamWorks was doing and How to Train Your Dragon, um, they weren't racking convergence uh, uh, in that uh, not, not the, the way that uh, Jim did in Avatar. In general, the focus followed, um, or convergence followed focus, so that if you had a character that uh, walked from the background to the foreground, the convergence would rack with them, so we stayed um, converged at the, at the screen plane. Um, and that the logic behind that is to, to reduce eye strain on cuts, and it, I think it, it's a logic that works and makes a lot of sense. In 
How to Train Your Dragon, uh, it appeared that what uh, DreamWorks was, was doing was finding a, a dynamic range that worked well for a given shot, uh, that felt good, and then um, the convergence was where the convergence was, and the, the main character may be behind the screen and then walk forward, and they didn't rack during any of that. Because the argument is if you've got a two shot, and you might be pulling focus as the characters talk to each other, mm -hmm. which is naturally where the eye is doing as it's moving, and they're very rarely at the same distance, so the focus does change. Mm -hmm. There isn't a lot of point in moving the convergence forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards, because there's just, even though the focus is moving mm -hmm. and your eye is moving, that just causes the dimensionalization to kind of do this. And that would be yeah. the argument to go with the DreamWorks dragon approach. Mm -hmm. And is that what you did? <laughs> we, yeah, we, we did a lot uh, more of uh, fixed space kind of stuff. Uh, so there, there are definitely places where we, we rack convergence uh, in the picture, but uh, for the most part we're, we're following more of the, the uh, DreamWorks and Pixar style that seem to be more optimized on a given shot and not worry so much about trying to make sure that uh, wherever you happen to be looking um, on a, at the point of a cut is sort of matched in depth. Uh, I found that uh, I was a lot less sensitive than, to that than I was led to believe I, I would be. Uh, and that, that, that was the screening that also convinced me that the floating windows uh, actually works pretty well because we, uh, both uh, Pixar and DreamWorks uh, make extensive use of floating windows. And, uh, and uh, really looking at it, I was surprised at how little I noticed it in the theater. And you had to, to be kind of taking your glasses off to go, oh, look, yeah, look, there, uh, that's a floating window on that. Um, but the fact was that it, uh, it, it, you didn't get that strain at the edge of, uh, of the screen. It didn't give you it that. It feels like it gets you back a little bit of your negative uh, space into your budget without actually costing you the sense of uh, punching well, the audience. Yeah, what it gets you is lets you put things um, well in front of the screen, but having that floating window there makes it look like it's still behind the screen. Yeah. So it gives you, um, without creating strain, um, a very large uh, or maximized um, depth dynamic range. Well, look, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about us, and congratulations Perfect. on the film, and I look forward to the rest. Thanks for that, Mike. And I just want to do a quick mention of the PhD production blog over at fxphd.com where you can keep up with what new productions are going on inside FXPHD, as well as profiles on some of the most amazing, talented professors. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. So until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.